Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we have on Nicholas Pearson. He has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for nearly 30 years. As one of the leading voices in crystal healing today, he offers a unique blend of science and spirituality alongside a grounded practical approach to working with crystals. He's the author of several books, including Crystal Basics, which is a book we're going to talk about today, but we're really going to talk about all things crystals. So, hey, thanks, Nicholas, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my um, pleasure. Thanks. And, you know, I had talked to you before about how hard it is to interview people about crystals because it seems people go into a very cut and dry thing. And um, you're, the fact that you're bringing in the mineral and the science is very intriguing to me. But before we get into that, Let's start with how did you get into crystals? Well, you know, to be a little bit of a cliche, I was the kind of kid who picked up rocks everywhere. There was just something so reassuring, so magical, something almost otherworldly amidst the seemingly mundane when it came to rock and stone. So, you know, I had my little box of treasures full of things that I found in exotic locations like family trips to the mountains or um, summers by the, the ocean um, down in my, my hometown on the coast of Southeast Florida. But, you know, I also found rock in pretty not so mystical places like parking lots and gravel driveways that just always kind of spoke to me. So around the age of eight, as best as anyone can reckon, my my grandfather gave me my first proper mineral specimen, a piece of clear quartz from Hot Springs, Arkansas. And all of a sudden it was like this inert part of the landscape was transfigured into something luminous, something magical. It was like holding a piece of a fairy tale in my hand. And I mean, I've been smitten ever since. That's about 30 years ago, I got that first specimen and I've been collecting ever since. And in the intervening years, um, I've been fascinated by everything when it comes to rock and mineral and gem and crystal. I love the folklore. I love fairy tales that involve these kind of mythic gems. I love the science of it. I love the, the cultural meaning and value that has been ascribed to rock and stone over the millennia. And there's just no part of it that I haven't fallen in love with. And I was really grateful we'll say lucky, but I think it's more than luck, um, that when I went to Stetson University to study music, I was actually assigned to work in the Earth Science Museum as part of my um, financial aid program. And mm -hmm. I had no idea that this institution existed, let alone that it was home to the largest rock and mineral collection in the southeastern oh, US. Yeah. And at, that couldn't have point, been an accident. <laughs> no, no. And so I, I came in with this love. I came in with um, so much background knowledge and, and a hunger for learning more that within a couple of weeks, I had almost unrestricted access to the collection. The only thing I didn't have was like login credentials for the database uh, as far as like where things were stored and where they got moved. But 
Um, I was allowed to kind of work with the collection itself to put things on display, to renew and rearrange displays, to help with the storage and acquisition of new things. It was just this beautiful experience that ignited a much deeper love and appreciation for for minerals. And that really um, is kind of what opened the door to connecting the dots between the science and the spirituality of crystal healing. That is amazing. Can I can I ask this? Have you ever been spelunking, splunking, gone into I, the caves and actually mined the crystals? Um, you know, I've I've never been into a cave that permits active mining. Um, the the few caves that I've gone into, you know, I live in Florida. We're not we're not known for our great geology. We've got a lot of karst topography, so there are some caves if you can find them, but it's all limestone. But when I get a chance to to travel, if I can see some great geological features, um, I was just at Karchner Caverns in Arizona earlier this year, um, and that's a, a living, breathing, still forming, growing kind of cave. So you know, no active mining is done there. No touching of anything is permissible. Um, and I've been to a couple other cave systems in, in the U.S., but um, anytime I get to see the landscape in action, whether that's a cave, a gorge, a canyon, a mountain, some beautiful rolling hills, the the kind of cross-section of strata that you see when highways are cut through rock faces, I, I always pause to appreciate the geological story being told wherever possible. Why do crystals have such energy to them? Well, there are a couple different ways we can talk about this. You know, the first one we'll say is maybe more metaphorical. It it involves uh, symbolism and correspondence. And since you know the beginning of human history, we have made these connections between various gems and crystals and other parts of the cosmos. Some of the earliest writings that we have ever recorded um, are actually lists of gemstones that describe their monetary, medicinal, and magical values, all kind of rolled up together because those things weren't so distinct as they are today. And we see a kind of system of correspondence between the planets, the stars, and the stones themselves. So we have this kind of, um, we'll say, vertical ontology that connects, you know, the heavens to the earth. And we have various substances, whether they're gems or crystals or herbs or animals or anything that that kind of represent these relationships and the archetypal forces behind them. But beyond that kind of um, symbol set, you know, if we use the lens of modern science, if we apply the principles of physics to understand what's happening inside the seemingly inert matter that is any rock or crystal or gemstone, uh, we recognize that they're made out of these really organized bits that are all perfectly synchronized. They're in this beautiful, symmetrical kind of structure. And one thing that we know about solid matter is that it's mostly empty. And the little tiny bits, the little particles that are in there, the smaller and smaller we go, the less they behave like solid things. So we we get to this really kind of refined perspective where um, you know energy and matter are closely interrelated, and the kinds of of matter that we experience in the world in the cosmos um, generate these really subtle energy fields. You know, we talk a lot about subtle energy and psychic energy, the the human aura. In in science, we talk about things like the biomagnetic sheath and other ways that we can kind of demystify that. Um, But, you know, these are extraordinarily 
um, we'll say sensitive, but also subtle um, kinds of energies that, that pervade all of matter. And one thing that we can see is that the more coherent or the more organized a substance or system is, then the more coherent and organized its energy field will also be. Uh, another thing that science can can demonstrate is that a more organized or coherent energy field produced by us is ha, has a deep relationship to health and wellness. Science is careful about demonstrating causal relationships when they can't always support that with the data, but but we see there's a correlation between an organized human energy field and health and a not so organized energy field and whatever the opposite of health is going to be, whatever whatever jargon we want to use. Um, so it stands to reason that if we can introduce really highly organized subtle energies to our own, we can entrain them, we can teach them, we can use crystals almost like a tuning fork to demonstrate what order and symmetry and harmony are like on that energetic level. We begin to move into that state of harmony. And when we do so, we, we know that particularly heart-brain coherence in, in the, the electromagnetic field that permeates the body um, begins this kind of domino effect of sending chemical and electrical transmitters through the system that that begins to bring us to a state of greater health and harmony. So we have both the metaphoric and symbolic realm that we can look. We can't measure that in, you know, quantitative data, but we can express it qualitatively. But then we've also got, you know, this model that physics provides. I don't think it accounts for all the energies involved because there are things we can't measure yet, um, but it, it gives us another model for understanding how and why crystals do what they do. And if if we have disorganized energy, can we disorganize the crystal or are they stronger? <laughs> do they organize us rather than we disorganize them? It's a great question. So, um, to understand this, we have to look at a couple of closely related terms that we don't always use accurately in the metaphysical world. And I want to talk about frequency versus amplitude. We talk about frequency a lot in subtle energy, and I want to take us all back to the ancient and mystical era when stereos, radios actually had like knobs on them instead of everything being a touchscreen. And, you know, we've got, we've got two dials that are important when we want to listen to the radio, one of which is the station. That's the frequency. You know, those numbers that we dial into 88.9 or 101.7, that's like the megahertz, the number of thousands of cycles per second actually being measured. So that's the station. Frequency is nothing more than that. The other knob that's really important for us to pay attention to is the amplitude or volume, how loud or soft that's going to be. So one thing that we can note about energy fields is that systems that are more organized have higher amplitude energies. They're louder um, than systems that are less organized. So it is very hard for us to entrain a crystal to chaos because we're not, we're not producing, we'll say one note, one pitch, one chord, if we want to use music as our analogy here. We're doing lots of different things all at once. And we kind of have to. That's the nature of biological systems. My liver is made out of different stuff than my, my kidneys and my big toe and my prefrontal cortex. So naturally, they all kind of have their own little vibratory notes or signatures. Um, but a crystal, on the other hand, is the same thing through and through. It's all of its parts and pieces are, are singing exactly the same melody at the same time. So they're going to have this kind of energy or song that cuts through the white noise that is louder than any part of us. So when we come together, 
my state of being less organized or less coherent is naturally entrained on the inherent structure, order, harmony that you've got in a crystal. So it doesn't exactly work the other way around. Good thing. <laughs> exactly, Good yes. Thing. Yeah. Um, how, you know, people will go to books and say, okay, this is for healing, this is for, but is there a way that they can feel that this crystal's for me? Oh, totally. You know, um, I always say that even though I write crystal books, the individual is the best authority on their own energy, and they're going to have the best chance at discerning which is the right crystal for them. If we work prescriptively, if we look something up on the internet or in a book and say, okay, well, this book says such and such crystals for such and such scenario in life, which I'm experiencing. Um, but, you know, there could be like 500 other crystals that also relate to that one scenario. So how do we choose? And the idea is we got to choose by resonance. We have to learn to kind of quiet our mind. And, you know, sometimes that's really just a matter of changing the dial on the radio. Instead of paying attention to the white noise, we kind of hone in on the station that is us and the station that is that crystal. And we see if they're going to sync up. And, you know, for some people that happens in a really kind of tangible way. They might feel a sensation for other people that might be visual. Other people just have an inner knowing. And, you know, when all else fails, just try it. Just do trial and error and see what works and what doesn't. Um, there's no right or wrong way to perceive crystal energy. There are things we can do that enhance perception, things like regular meditation and visualization and other kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it's it's about building a relationship with that crystal. How willing are you to put a few other things in your life on hold just for a few moments to get quiet and perceive or hold space for that crystal to do what it's going to do? And when we do that conscientiously, we start to have a much deeper relationship to the world of rock and stone than we would if we just treated them like a, a magic bullet that's going to fix our lives. Do you have to hold the crystal for it to work or can it be in your a lot of people put them on their altar, or can it just be in your home? All of the above. But let's think about also um, working with crystals in an effective way. So generally speaking, with, without complicating things like talking about non-locality and quantum entanglement, let's let's focus <laughs> Thank on... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, let, let's focus on where we put crystals is where their primary action is going to be. So if you want protection for you personally, and you place a crystal, you know, on your desk, and you leave the house, the crystals protecting the area it's been placed and not on you. So if you want that kind of mobile effect, mobile action, then carry that crystal with you. Um, if you want the influence to be at work, leave it on your desk at work. If you want it to be on, at at home, you know, uplifting the environment, ensuring that you've got a prosperous home, bringing health or joy or whatever other intention might be, then, you know, we place it there. And I like to work with my crystals in layers. So, you know, I have those that work on the home at large and the people within it. I have those that, that work on me, like the gems around my neck or wrists or stuck in my pockets. I have those that are in specific zones of the home. Like I've got specific crystals beside my bed and ones that are on my desk and others that are in the kitchen or the living room because they kind of create this little sphere of influence. Um, and as we get, we'll say, a deeper relationship with our stones, as we 
move towards more advanced methods of working, then we can start working with crystals in non-local ways. We can kind of think of them as like antennas that project or broadcast energy outwards. Um, but I say, start with the simplest, which is place it where you want it to work, whether that's on you or in a particular place in your home or workspace. If I've placed it, let's say on my desk, and I've placed it for protection and somebody else comes in and sits down, does the crystal then start to work on them as well? Hypothetically speaking, yes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think I think we always have to kind of take into account that there is a getting to know you phase, um, you know, just like with people. We, we don't tap someone on the shoulder when we're in line at Starbucks and say, okay, you're my new accountant. We, we have to actually like right. intentionally build a relationship. First off, is that person an accountant? Do they have space for clients? Um, are you the right kind of client for them? Are they the right kind of uh, accountant for you? You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. So, you know, in the hypothetical, in theory, when that crystal is used for more environmental or we'll say ambient influence, whoever's walking into that radius, into that sphere of influence is going to receive some kind of background benefit. But the, the better relationship comes from the intentional making time, making space to get to know that crystal, setting the intention and letting its work, its magic at the conscious as well as the subconscious levels. So sure, you you could just walk by an accountant in line and 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 maybe you strike up a relationship and that works for you, but probably you have to go look them up and make time and have an appointment and submit all your documents and do everything the hard and the slow way. And that's that's the best way to work with crystals rather than just assume they're going to do their job because they're in close proximity to you. So that means cleansing them. That means programming them or charging them with your intention. That means making space for them to do their job rather than just putting a crystal on a shelf and forgetting about it. Mm -hmm. Before we go into all of those, I wanted to ask, is a crystal alive? In a classical biological sense, no. Um, you know, they are, they're regarded as non-living systems, um, abiotic factors in the environment. However, from you know, an animistic perspective. And for most of human history around the world, we've had an animistic view of the world around us rather than a mechanical view of the world around us. And I believe that there is a spirit, a spark of consciousness in all matter, not just biological organisms, but in, in all things. So yes, I find that there is a kind of spark of life within every crystal, every blade of grass, every tree, every gust of wind is inspirited in some way, but it's not life in a classical sense. But it's, it's life complex enough to have a relationship with. Absolutely. How do we first incorporate crystals into our lives? I think the simplest thing that we can do is meditating with or contemplating our crystals. And for people who are kind of new to the realm of spirituality, I try to take away words that feel challenging, like meditate, and let's call it a crystal contemplation. Find the best light you can, take that stone into said lighting, and just ooh and ah over it. Look at it from every angle. Hold it in the light. Hold it up to the light and see if if light can be transmitted through it or reflected off, or if there's a, a rainbow or a shimmer or some other kind of interesting optical phenomenon that holds your attention. 
feel it in a tactile way as long as you're not going to break the crystal or cut yourself. Um, get to know the heft of it in your hand. Just engage all of the senses that are smart enough and safe enough to use. And while your conscious mind is really invested in and all these kind of quantitative things, oh, this surface is smooth, this surface is rough, this stone is heavy, that crystal is light, that one is transparent, that one is opaque. Whatever whatever you're assigning, whatever values show up, um, is keeping your conscious mind in rapt relationship with the stone. And it kind of opens the back door for your subconscious mind to enter into communion with it as well. And as you do this, you start to notice that Particular crystals evoke particular feelings or sensations or images or other impressions that might show up for you. And since we're all wired a little bit differently, there's no right or wrong way to get that, whether it's visual or tangible or just an inner knowing. Um, and as we repeat these kinds of exercises and, and build this kind of uh, two-way road of communication through that kind of backdoor route, then we start to build a vocabulary of energy. We notice, ah, when I hold fluorite, I feel really centered. When I hold black tourmaline, I feel really solid. When I connect with rhodochrosite, there's this kind of joy inside me or whatever emotions might show up for you on a personal level. And I think it's better to start with simple techniques like that than to immediately go to, well, here is a recipe for a crystal grid or a layout, or this is a specific energy exercise you have to perform. Because if we do all those things, without getting to know our crystals first, then, you know, it's again, like tapping that stranger on the shoulder and saying, hey, I have a job for you, instead of getting to know someone and finding out what their strengths, their skill set is going to be. If somebody gives you a crystal, so they had owned the crystal and had a relationship with that crystal, and then they give it to you, um, you know, what do you do? In other words, that crystal is also already theirs and has a relationship here and giving it to you. How does that work in, in transferring it energetically? Right. Well, you know, um, we have friends who have friends that are not us, right? We, we know human beings who have other social circles they belong to. So crystals can multitask just like we can. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that we can do to symbolically as well as kind of energetically um, help that crystal enter a new phase, a new relationship is by practicing good psychic hygiene and cleansing our crystals when we get them. Um, cleansing is one of those really foundational practices that we don't think of in terms of like good energy or bad energy. I instead like to think of relevant energy versus irrelevant energy. Crystals have a kind of memory to them. They naturally record experiences from their environment on an energetic level. Um, that's not inherently good or bad. They just have better memories than we do. So not everything they remember is aligned with the task at hand. So cleansing is an opportunity to kind of wipe the slate clean so we can start fresh. And that might be when we first get the crystal. It might be when we wake up in the morning and pick up the bracelet we're going to put on before we go out into the world, because, you know, some of the experiences it saw yesterday aren't relevant to today's experiences. Um, and, you know, good, good psychic hygiene is just as important as good physical hygiene. How do you cleanse a crystal? And do you need to do it every day? So I would say cleanse your crystals often, but you get to determine what often is. There, there are things that I cleanse at the end of every day when I come home, if I've had a you know time outside of the house. There are other things that I cleanse maybe once or twice a month, um, some a little bit more often, depending on what my life looks like. 
Um, but as far as how to cleanse, there are tons of ways. You can cleanse with sun and water and salt and smoke and sound. But the, the important thing to realize is that certain cleansing methods are not universally safe for all crystals. So for example, some things like kunzite or amethyst could bleach when exposed to the sun. Other things could be scratched or otherwise damaged by salt. Others can be dissolved or marred by water. So we want to make sure that we're matching um, the, the cleansing technique to the crystal at hand. There are three techniques that I use in my kind of everyday practice that are safe for all crystals, and they are smoke, sound, and breath. And I've got instructions for those in several of my books, including my latest Crystal Basics Pocket Encyclopedia. Um, if you go for the big Crystal Basics, which came out in 2020, there are even more techniques in there. Um, but both of those books will kind of give you an idea of what is safe for which kinds of crystals. You know, avoid avoid things that are soluble in water and avoid things with a specific hardness or, or lower for salt and so on and so forth. You only have to do it one, like, let's say if I buy a crystal from a metaphysical store and I bring it home, I cleanse it, but do I only have to cleanse it once or does it require many cleanses? Well, <laughs> you know, if, if we buy a new outfit from the store, we wash it when we bring it home, but then we wear it and we wash it again and then we wear it and we wash it again. So we want to treat our psychic hygiene similar to our physical hygiene. We're going to have different needs. Um, not everyone washes their their sheets or their towels after every single use. Some people might, but others might not. So you get to determine what is, we'll say, a, a comfortable amount of psychic debris for you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, similar to anything else in your life that needs to be physically or psychically or spiritually cleansed. Uh, we're going to have different tolerances for it, but. In most cases, more is probably better. I there there is no harm that comes as long as you use a safe and effective method um, from cleansing a crystal too often. But it could be you could lose efficacy by not cleansing often enough. And you know, really, how how often is the correct amount? And it it entirely depends. The things in my office, other humans rarely see except my husband who comes into my office. That's pretty much it. It's it's not common for another being to bring their energy into this space. And if so, I cleanse before and after. One, because why should they put up with my energy if they're my house guest? And two, I don't want them to leave any unexpected gifts behind. Um, but for something that I wear out into the world, like jewelry or something that goes in my pocket, I probably will cleanse it when I get home or overnight when I'm done working with it or wearing it. Um, and then if I'm seeing clients, if I'm actually going out and teaching a class or doing one-on-one -on -one crystal work, I cleanse those tools before and after every session, um, just so that way I can ensure I'm not bringing anything unexpected into the session. And also, so I don't bring anything home with me that isn't mine, energetically speaking. You know what? I want to take a break because I want to come back and ask you about as we change, do the crystals change, as well as, you know, size and shape and color and all of that. So we'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. One thing's for certain, life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? 
Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Barb Crowley, and we're back with Nicholas Pearson, and we're talking about crystals and every aspect of crystals. Um, I wanted to ask you, how crystals personally have impacted you or, or shifted you? Oh gosh, you know, with three decades of being supported right. by. You have and, to pick you know, one. <laughs> there's so many stories, but I think one of the clearest episodes of my life where I had the support of crystals that was just so tangible was in 2012. I was in a motorcycle accident and, um, you know, I, I, ridden a motorcycle as my primary, my only means of transport for quite a number of years at that point. And then just all of a sudden that ended the way it tends to. And um, I, I, I remember the first part of that night being a complete blur. And I also remember like just kind of being able to step back and see how calm I was reacting. And for people who don't know me yet, um, I tend to be kind of a tightly wound person. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm a very anxious person as well. That comes out when I travel. It comes out when I do new things. I have an anxiety disorder. That was a whole interesting thing to manage in college. Um, but I just, I remember kind of taking everything in stride and being surprised by it until it was time to have my x-rays done, in which case I had to take off all my jewelry. And I had on, in particular two necklaces that I was wearing, beads of amethyst and rhodonite. You know, amethyst is among other things, calming. It gives us a, a kind of higher perspective on things. And rhodonite is an emotional stabilizer. To gra- it's a grounding stone. And I handed them to the nurse Um who took me to the the imaging section and um, she commented on how remarkably comforting these stones felt. And we were having a whole conversation and sitting there on the table, waiting for the x-ray to do its thing. And as I'm sitting there, no longer having the stones on my person, all of a sudden this, this little feeling of panic begins to rise up. And rationally, I'm like, this is the least stressful part of my night. Why all of a sudden do I feel so anxious, so nervous, so tense. Why is it increasing in in gravitas as it goes on? And then she hands me the stones. I put them on kind of perfunctorily. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, really following through. And um, this feeling of relief hits me within moments. And I'm like, oh, right. The crystals are doing their thing when I'm wearing them. 
when I send them away, they're not doing their thing on my person anymore. So, um, yeah, I, I remember several But they were doing it for her. Right. Exactly. She actually felt the calming. So even I, though even though they were yours. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I remember other people who were there with me um, observing how well I was handling things in the moment. Yeah. Given... Everybody was shocked, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Myself included. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the most tangible experiences of crystal energy I've had in my life during an emergent situation. You know, I, I hope that other people don't have to rely solely upon crystals during emergent situations, during urgent mm -hmm. and, you know, um, we'll say crisis related stuff, but um, it's nice to have them in addition to whatever other supports we've got. And thankfully, you know, they were there as, as a part of the cast of characters. You know, my father drove up from South Florida. My best friend was there. My roommate was there to help. So like everything was, was there in place. But the thing that helped me the most emotionally speaking was having that rhodonite and that amethyst on my body. And ever since rhodonite and I have been best friends. Okay. <laughs> Now, I have to ask you, though, did you have something on you for protection, you know, where you were in the the uh, accident, in the um, motorcycle accident? Um, I mean, Amethyst and Ronate both have protective qualities. That wasn't the primary purpose in me wearing them. Um, but, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, if someone decides to make a left-hand turn into traffic, and I'm the mm -hmm. oncoming traffic, no crystal is going to stop that from happening. Right. So, um, you know, thankfully I had the common sense kind of protection, like a helmet and everything else. Um, mm -hmm. And we were going at a relatively low speed. So it was, it was about as gentle on my body as a motorcycle accident can be, which still is not fun. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. And can crystals help you physically heal? Um, I want to make sure that I answer this as conscientiously as possible. Um, crystals work predominantly on the energy field, on the subtle levels, on the psyche and the spirit. However, I believe that there is an intrinsic relationship between the energetic and the subtle level and our physical level. So even though I can't prove or demonstrate a, a, a causal relationship between crystal healing and the physical body. I believe that as we make changes at the spiritual level, it kind of works its way down to the physical body. So you can sure bet there were gem therapy protocols I was following when I had my broken knee and everything else after the accident. There are other times in my life that I've turned to crystals to support whatever other allopathic or traditional healthcare I'm following, but always as a support, never as a replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about like color, shape, size, things like that with, um, with the crystals, you know, when, when we're choosing, you know, uh, should I get the biggest, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So let's talk color first, because I think mm -hmm. that's something that we're, we're initially drawn to when we look at a beautiful gemstone or a wonderful mineral specimen or polished crystal. Um, it's kind of universal human reaction. We see this incredible luscious color or not, and we're either drawn to it or maybe not so drawn to it based on that relationship we've got with color. Um, when it comes to the optics and the physics of color, um, there's very little going on 
in in many crystals. So we have, you know, something like amethyst gets that beautiful violet color from a few stray molecules of iron. There's very, very little happening inside it that changes the color. So for all intents and purposes, what we experience as a dramatic change in color is actually a really nominal one at the kind of you know, chemistry level, at the structural level of what's happening in that crystal's morphology. Um, and, you know, that that creates this kind of interesting dichotomy. Uh, I had a teacher um, who's since retired. Um, she was a, a big proponent of using physics for understanding how crystals work. And she taught that color accounts for about one fourteenth. That's about 7% of a crystal's total energy. So that means that about 93% of a crystal's energy is determined by other factors. Um, and you know, part of, part of the important thing to remember is that our psychological attachment to color is going to supersede the physics in most cases. I can tell you that a brilliant crimson red stone is absolutely the right stone for you, whether or not red is the reason why. But if you hate the color red, if there's just something about red that repels you, that's probably more important than whatever physics are involved in reflecting that wavelength back to you. So we have to remember that that color is important psychologically, um, but is much less important in most cases, chemically speaking, electromagnetically speaking, when understanding what crystals do. So um, I'd also like to just as a little aside, point out that color is the least important part of rock and mineral ID to geologists. Um, it's the last thing we have to pay attention to. I mean, sometimes the color of something is so telltale that we know right off the bat, um, but we always have to confirm things like crystal structure, its habit, its hardness, all these other values are way more important than color. And you get some things that, that vary a lot. So um, color is important to the beginner. Color is less important to you know the geoscientist. Uh, when it comes to shape, shape is something that we can contemplate as a means of distributing energy. So if we have a, a beautiful, flawless quartz sphere, um, you know, optical grade, not a single wisp or veil or crack or fissure inside, just perfectly clear. And then a, we'll say a polished obelisk or point um, equally as flawless, they have the same energy. There, there is nothing we're doing that changes the fundamental energy in that crystal by reconfiguring its outer form because the primary drivers of what makes a crystal so magical, energetically speaking, are things like its chemical composition, its crystal structure on the molecular level, the geological events that brought those ingredients together in that form. So no amount of rubbing, grinding, cutting, polishing is going to influence what's happening at that molecular level. Instead, it's more like listening to the same piece of music through two different kinds of speakers. We're going to perceive certain things better in one than another, or we'll, we'll notice that this shape projects energy in one way better than this one, which is kind of soft in all directions. So I always think of form as secondary to the rest. Um, quality is something that I pay more attention to, um, you know, is something beautiful and flawless versus not. And that doesn't mean it's inherently better than, just we'll say maybe more focused or laser-like than one that's full of inclusions of other stuff because that other stuff has its own energy. It's the difference between a, a soloist, a, a single voice versus an ensemble. One's not better than the other. They're just two different kinds of music. 
Um, and then when it comes to size, you know, here's here's the one that you know we see said so many times: size doesn't matter when it comes to our crystals. And um, you know, on the one hand, if all other factors are the same, it's the same quality, the same color saturation, the same presence or absence of other minerals, other inclusions, um, the same overall shape, uh, then the only thing size does is it affects volume. The greater the mass, the more stuff, the more matter that's inside that crystal, then the louder it's going to be. Um, you know, it's just like the bigger the speaker, if as long as it's the same kind of speaker, um, the louder the sound it can produce. So um, size does kind of matter, but not in the way I think people think. Um, if we are working on ourselves, if we are carrying a crystal for our own personal health and well-being for our own protection, then we don't necessarily need a jumbo crystal because it's just working on us. It's like having an intimate conversation with a friend. You can do that in a whisper. But if you want to affect a bigger area, then you got to shout. You got to make sure that you can be heard down the street. And that's why we might choose to work with larger crystals. So larger is louder. Louder is not mm -hmm. better. It's just louder. And there are circumstances where you might find that useful. Um, you know, if I'm working with clients and I want to affect rapid change, I might work with bigger crystals. But sometimes rapid change is not helpful. Sometimes incremental change is much better. And it's it's helpful to have tools that meet all sorts of different needs when, especially if you're working with clients, if you're working with others as a, you know, crystal healer, um, then it's nice to have various sizes, various shapes uh, in your toolbox, because all of these things affect the kind of practical function of what's happening. You know, I love working with crystal spheres. They're not helpful for laying on the body. So I got to have flat things that'll nicely rest. And no matter how much I think someone's third eye chakra is going to benefit from a 45 pound piece of amethyst, that's not a practical thing to do. So we got to have the little one to place there so it's safe and viable and comfortable. Um, and, you know, this is a good reminder to get to know the tools you've got before you feel like you have to break the bank on the biggest, the most beautiful, the most exquisitely carved, the highest quality, um, because they're all just expressions of the same kind of fundamental qualities that crystal has. And, um, can you have a crystal that is overwhelming to you that could make you nauseous kind of thing that the energy is too strong? You know, we all kind of perceive energy differently and very sensitive folks often can find crystals that make them uncomfortable. Even people who are not so sensitive will eventually encounter crystals that make them uncomfortable. And it might be, you know, a kind of gradual thing you notice in the background versus all at once. Um, and I can tell another story about a time that I met a crystal that like on paper, I loved everything it did. I loved its mythology, its history, its role that it played in art. I loved what it should be doing for me, but the moment I wore it, it just, it, it wasn't the right fit. And I had to work my way up to it. Um, that gem was lapis lazuli, which is a beautiful, brilliant ultramarine blue, sometimes flecked with gold and pyrite and streaks of white calcite and shades of diopside and other minerals that can be present. Um, and it is just stunning. It's been revered for millennia as a precious substance. Um, but the moment I spent some big money in my corporate days on a really nice strand of lapis lazuli beads that I could wear around the clock and I attempted to do so, you know, it it definitely immediately worked on this kind of mental level and it gave me this kind of inner spaciousness. But one of the things about lapis lazuli is it has a kind of Saturnian quality to it. 
Um, and, you know, Saturn is the planet of gravitas, the planet of weight. It's the, the ruler of Capricorn. And there's a lot of Capricorn in my chart. And so we were kind of like magnifying too many of those qualities. And, you know, in my head, working my corporate job, I was using the scripts as I was supposed to use them, but everything just kind of felt flatline. Everything was heavy. And I, I didn't notice it so much as other people did. I, w- I wasn't connecting with clients. My, I wasn't getting my team to be so effervescent. And finally, someone just took me aside and was like, are you okay? You seem kind of like down or heavy. What's going on? I'm like, nothing. Everything's great. Except to them, it probably sounded like nothing. Everything's great. And it was just <laughs> the way that Lapis affected me on a personal level. Its job is not to make us feel heavy, but there's something about it that hits something in me. And I immediately took the necklace off. And, you know, probably within 10, 15 minutes, I'm bright, bubbly Nicholas again, able to connect with clients and lead his team. And, you know, everything was great. So I had to work my way up to that. And it wasn't that it made me nauseous or gave me an unpleasant physical sensation. It was a personality change that other people noticed as being subtle but still palpable. So, you know, that happens to the best of us sometimes. And the truth is that those crystals aren't necessarily things we need to avoid. They often represent some of our biggest roadblocks to healing and to personal growth. So we have to work at them, but we have to work at them conscientiously. It's not saying that you got to go out and buy 20 pounds of whatever crystal makes you feel crummy. Find that, that one piece, give yourself 15 minutes to work with it in a safe space. Don't decide that that's when you're going to go accomplish your whole to-do list and go out grocery store, grocery shopping and visit the DMV and do anything else you got to do. Cause you're not going to enjoy that experience. Um, work with it in a safe space and, and come back to it time and time again, when you have the bandwidth to do so. And that's the best way to work with those crystals that do make us feel a little uncomfortable. Did you work your way up to Lapis? I did. And I really enjoy working with Lapis these days. It's not, you know, an everyday stone for me, but I go through phases where I, I, I do come back to it and I find that it really kind of opens things up in a way before, but it had to show me all the ways that I was closed first. And that was why that happened the way it did for me. There was a saying that, that, um, the stone chooses you. You don't choose the stone. Is that true? You know, I think the best relationships we've got with crystals are just that. They're relationships. And it's a kind of two-way street. They meet us where we're at. We meet them where we're at. And um, the best kind of alchemy comes from that. That's not to say that you can't, you know, look at a list of crystals and their properties out of a, a book or online and go, okay, this is the one I want. And then go to this store with your shopping list and buy that one. You can do that. And you can experience good results. Um, but I think it's far better to remain open to the mystery of letting the crystal pick you or, or waiting to find the right one. Sometimes you go to the store with your you know, shopping list of crystals. I need blue lace agate and I need some sodalite and I got to find some citrine. And you're, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. All of a sudden you look at the shelf and there's a sparkly piece of lapidolite. And you're like, well, this is making my heart sing, but it's not on the shopping list. Go for what makes your heart sing. There's obviously some kind of resonance happening when you do that. Um, but also, you know, pay attention to those crystals that that maybe make you feel a little wobbly at your core and and make you feel a little off kilter because those could also be really good teachers like we were just talking about. And they're, they're choosing you, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Can you outgrow 
your crystal. So, you know, where you've had a great relationship and then as you change or as a crystal helps you change even, can you outgrow your relationship with that crystal or that crystal? Yeah, I, I think we can just, just like we outgrow friends and jobs and other things in life. We can outgrow particular stones. I think at the most fundamental level, if we think of crystals as these kind of electromagnetic oscillators, they're, they're, they're vibrating at a specific rate, specific frequency or, or set of frequencies. And we learn to integrate those into our energy field. Then, you know, once that becomes second nature, that crystal has done its job for us on that level. You know, that's, that's only looking at the energy involved. That's not looking at the consciousness involved. You know, maybe you can outgrow something in one level, but still enjoy working with it. Like, you know, you've, you've got that friend who probably doesn't have too much to share that's going to change your life, but you love them. You just love them because they are them. Because they're history. Yeah, and there's right. history. Right. right. So it's the same with our stones. Just because something isn't changing your life currently doesn't mean you can't still love it. And then other times you'll go, you know what, this crystal has served its purpose and I I feel time to move on to the next stone or maybe to gift it to a friend who's in need or whatever that might be. There's no single way to, to choose how or when or why you outgo crystals. I would say just invest in the relationship and see where it takes you. Um, the, the crystals, like there's a base, it seems like there's a basic set that everybody has or that everybody gets. And what is that basic set? When you're first starting, this is when you're first starting. Yeah. You know, I, I am not a prescriptivist by nature. I'm not a, everyone has to go out and buy these, these stones. I'm more of a descriptivist, like let's look at themes and describe things that can support you work through those themes. So, you know, generally speaking, there are crystals that I think most of us come to as beginners, things like all members of the quartz family, clear quartz, rose quartz, smoky quartz, amethyst, citrine, agate, jasper, tiger's eye, the list goes on and on and on. Um, you know, lots of people like to turn to things like selenite and tourmaline and labradorite because they do so much for us. Um, but really, I think... At the beginning, there, there are two modes of thinking that will help you build the best toolkit for you. The first one is broad spectrum. You know, have a little bit of every kind of crystal. I don't mean one of every mineral species, but crystals that are grounding, crystals that promote love, crystals that are uh, maybe clarifying to the energy field, have things that are expansive and things that are um, maybe a little bit more inwards focused. So, you know, get get a, a, a varied kind of toolbox. One of the ways we do this when we're beginners is also to use that kind of color spectrum as our guide. Um, color accounts for a small amount of the crystal's energy, but a large amount of our relationship with it sometimes. So making sure you know, you've got a well-rounded toolbox means having variety there. Um, the other way that I like to do this is, yes, we have our, our well-rounded toolbox, but what crystals are you most drawn to when you visit the store? When someone is brand new to the world of crystals, instead of running them through a list of you need these 10 stones or these 25 stones, I say, take a, take a tour, walk around, find the three that really speak to you. Ignore everything on the little card that tells you about the crystal, except for two things. 
its name and its price. One, so we know who it is we're working with and two, to make sure we're not breaking the budget. Um, ignore everything else that's written there because so many crystal shops will have these helpful little descriptions that tell you, you know, such and such stone is for abundance and love and everything. But, mm-hmm. you know, you know, if imagine if I asked you to reduce your entire experience to uh, a two inch square piece of paper, you're going to have to omit some information, right? Um, so you want to make sure that we don't reduce a crystal, to only those descriptions and instead go by what calls to you. And maybe what's on the card resonates. Once you find the stone, you're reading, you're like, oh, this is it. And other times you go, "Mm, nothing there applies to me. So then have a conversation with someone maybe who knows more, pick up a book that's got a more detailed explanation inside. Um, And then you start to see, oh, wow. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm working on. It just didn't fit on that little tiny piece of paper next to the basket of crystals. So you you can use either route, but you know, rather than saying you have to have these crystals, go go for a well-rounded kit, focusing on the ones that draw you in. And then how do you lay it out? How do you lay the crystals out or, or in a grid or how do you work with them that way? There are so many innovative ways that we can work with crystals. For anyone who's drawn to making grids, a crystal grid is an intentional arrangement of stones in some sort of geometric pattern um, that is aimed toward obtaining a particular goal or result. Um, So, you know, pulling your pocket full of tumbled stones out at the end of the day and laying them on the table, even if they end up in a perfect triangle, that's not a crystal grid. Um, But saying, okay, I'm, I'm working towards manifesting abundance. So I'm going to pick such and such crystals, like maybe a pyrite, aventurine, calcite, citrine, whatever it might be, and putting them in a particular configuration, that's a crystal grid. So there are lots of different ways we can do this. Some people like to use a kind of template or pattern they can lay them on, like the flower of life or you know, even just a six-pointed star or a square, whatever works for you. But you can do them freeform. You can kind of make your own mandala, if you will, on any background, including no background at all. Um, And once you've got your crystals laid out, make sure that they've been cleansed beforehand, just like, you know, we we make sure that our our, um, hardware in the kitchen is clean before we start baking cookies. We got to do the same with our crystals. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we want to make sure that we kind of set the intention with that grid. Um, I will do that by taking uh, another crystal, something with a crystal point on it, whether it's a natural little point like the citrine I'm holding up or a polished wand, anything at all. And if it all follows fails, use your fingers. They've got a natural point on them. And you want to kind of project your intention. Imagine that you are um, focusing your mental goal, your energy through that crystal, through that fingertip as an extension of your willpower and your kind of connecting all the crystals in that grid. Imagine that you're tracing whatever pattern is there. Maybe you'll do that by, if you've got a particular shape, like a star or a square or a circle, that's that's easy. But if it gets more complex, what I like to do is just kind of trace a s- spiral in toward the center and out from the center into the space. And just imagine they're all getting connected. They're all being unified and projecting their energy outwards. Um, And I've got some more detailed instructions for that in a few of the books. So if anyone really wants to learn about gridding, um, you can check uh, out Crystal Basics Pocket Encyclopedia for a little kind of taste of it. But there's there's a whole chapter on crystal grids if you look at Crystal Basics, um, the, the big edition that came out in 2020. And and 
in in your book in the uh, Crystal Basics, you have a grid that correlates with uh, chakras. It looks like. Yeah, I can your book here. <laughs> can do layouts, which are kind of like grids that are placed on and around the body. So you know, you could do a chakra balancing layout by selecting stones that resonate with a particular issues or goals that you have, or maybe some that are just kind of more general tonics to the chakras. You can do layouts specifically for protection of your space or of you personally and either build them around your home or around you. Um, you can be really inventive. You can, you know, think of it as like painting a picture or telling a story with crystals and choose the crystals that that support that end goal, that story you're trying to tell or that picture you're trying to paint. When you take crystals and put them onto your chakras, on your body, um, is that amplifying that chakra energy? Not necessarily. So we want to think about what is what what is the end goal here? Maybe you have an overactive chakra and the goal is to bring it into balance. So it wouldn't be amplifying it. It would be I hate to say diminishing, but it would be balancing it. So the the goal for any kind of topical placement of crystals is to concentrate that crystal's energy in a particular therapeutic window, we'll say, the the entryway, the the access point to integrate whatever that therapeutic result is going to be. So, you know, it might be on the chakras, but it might, might be over, you know, an acupuncture point or over a meridian or over a part of the body where you're experiencing pain or tightness or wherever you feel like an emotion is linked to your physical body. So it doesn't have to be limited to the chakra system. That's a really helpful model, but it's not the only one. So, you know, if that's a system that doesn't resonate with folks or you haven't studied it yet, You can certainly take a much simpler approach and say, hey, you know what? Um, I feel like this is my emotional center and I'd like the balancing effect of rose quartz and I'm going to put it there. Or maybe you go, you know, every time I feel like I've got to speak in public, I get butterflies in my stomach. So I'm going to take the crystal that I, I, I read is good for confidence are good for communication and place it over that area where I feel butterflies in my stomach. So you can use more than one model to get there, but rather than think of it always as amplifying it, think of it as balancing. Crystal's jobs are to bring things back into harmony, which could mean taking an underactive energy center and bringing its energy up, taking an overactive energy center, and bringing its energy down. So we get to that healthy balance in the middle. Mm-hmm. Have you ever put it on an injury? Oh, Today, absolutely. Crystal on the injury. Yeah. So when I had my motorcycle accident in particular, um, my primary care physician two weeks after the accident was very surprised, surprised probably isn't a strong enough word to describe the words that came out of his mouth. He wanted to know where my crutches were. Um, and he also wanted to know where the swelling went. Um, it's like, we're, we're two weeks out. Some, something happened. What, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm following all of your instructions. And, you know, I mentioned that I'm, I I practice some integrative medicine, so I, I made sure I did that as well, but I followed all of your instructions and I made sure to just kind of <laughs> lean Keep into calm. that part of it um, <laughs> so as not to raise too many red flags, but I was doing topical placements of um, uh, clear quartz because, you know, think of clear quartz as an all-purpose kind of balancer. 
Um, it is the, the most multifaceted, no pun intended, um, healing stone. I was also working with things like sodalite. Sodalite has a uh, relationship with the skeletal system and it energetically supports our bones, our uh, ligaments, our cartilage. And since I had a non-displaced fracture of the tibial spine, one of the bones underneath my, my kneecap was broken, essentially. Um, I was working a lot with sodalite to help support that. Um, I was also, you know, working with gem elixirs and doing meditations and other things, but um, carnelian is one that energetically supports things like um, reducing inflammation. So those are all gems that I had, you know, regularly to support me through that. And, you know, I had the, the shock of my primary care physician corroborating that something in fact was happening. Do crystals yeah. take all of the credit? No, of course. You know, I did all the other things that one should do. Um, but, you know, the thing about the kind of fracture that I had was, you know, we couldn't put it in a cast and just wait. I, I had to just kind of live with it and let things heal. Um, but it certainly happened at an accelerated rate um, as as per the observations of my medical team. Mm-hmm. Did they start using crystals after? Actually, I have to close. I just keep asking questions. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't go into specifics on what all my integrative practices looked like. Um, I I work a lot with um, medical practitioners in lots of areas of my focus. So um, I, I speak the language they're most comfortable with. And we kept mm-hmm. it to medicine in, in those consults because that's what my physician wanted. And I just kind of left it at that. Great. Hey, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on. You've answered all the questions I've had, and I hope that um, that's what my audience, you know, questions they had too. But also for those who need to, where can we get hold of you and where can we get your books? Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone who's tuning in. If you're interested in one of my books, they are hopefully sold everywhere books are sold. Um, whether that's going online at Barnes and Noble or Amazon or visiting your local independent bookseller mm-hmm. at a physical store. If they don't carry them, I'm sure they're happy to order them for you. Um, as far as tracking me down, you can find me online at The Luminous Pearl, whether that's my website, theluminouspearl.com, on social media, like uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok as The Luminous Pearl as well. Um, I'm pretty active on, on Instagram. It's a great place to go to get free content. I do weekly lives and all sorts of other fun stuff. But if you've got crystal questions, please reach out. Um, and I'll be happy to support you to the best of my ability. Great. Thank you so much for being on. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.